please welcome Senator Sarah Hanson-Young to introduce this panel. Thanks, everybody. And I hope you got some uh, sugar and caffeine in you. I heard that um, you all needed it come 4pm. Uh, so we're going to try and power through this session so that you don't, um, uh, you don't end the, the afternoon on a, like, sloths. You actually have, a, have, have some things to think about. Um, look, this session is, uh, I, and I haven't been here for the rest of the day, but I've been chairing a committee into press freedom. So when we think about um, democracy and all of those um, issues that overlap, of course, that's a very important part of it, is making sure that people actually get access to the information of what their governments are doing. Making journalism a crime um, is the t complete opposite. Um, if we want to make sure our citizens are informed of what our governments are up to. But from talking to people out in the um, uh, foyer out here, it sounds as though it's been quite an interesting day, lots of good discussion. And I'm hoping that for this session, which is um, talking about ecology and democracy, um, we can think about the things that um, we, uh, as a political movement, need to do uh, to really ensure that we protect our beautiful planet and our precious places, the things that are we hold very dear, particularly as Greens, so iconic to our identity uh, and why we're, for those of us in the parliament, uh, my parliamentary colleagues, for why we're there. Um, and as I say this, I'm reflecting on what's happened over the last few weeks. We've had the Prime Minister announce that he wants to um, crack down on protests and secondary boycotts, because how on earth um, should it be allowed that um, individuals, let alone companies, would be able to voice their opinion about um, the state of their planet, their environment, or want to do something about it? And I know that, um, sure, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I'm sure that um, in Adam's session, he probably spoke a little bit about that in relation to the coal campaign and the big um, push that's coming from the government to silence dissent on that front. Um, but I've been thinking a bit more broadly about what this culture of uh, shutting down protest, shutting down dissent, shutting down information, uh, uh, criminalising journalism, um, uh, making it harder and harder for whistleblowers and government departments to, to speak out. Um, and then things like the secondary boycotts and the government's plan to want to ban those that have a, a link to environmental campaigns what this is going to mean in terms of a cultural shift. And what the government is saying is that those places and those elements of the world that we hold precious, that we hold dear, that we uh, want to protect, that we're not... The government doesn't want us to be able to speak for them. So the animals and those gorgeous places that don't have a voice and we must be their voice, he wants to shut us up. He wants to say, OK, well, they've got no voice and they should remain voiceless. Um, so we've got to take that on. We have to take that on um, strongly. Um, and the broad breadth of what this shift would mean is not just in relation to um, sh companies who want to divest from coal uh, or to shut down coal mining in um, northern Queensland or to you know, make sure Adani doesn't get funded. But this is a culture that will then start to seep through other aspects. I was talking to the directors of the Melbourne Zoo last week and the Melbourne Zoo run numerous campaigns in relation to public advocacy and campaigning on protecting particular areas of habitat, 
wilderness areas, particular animals. And the one campaign that comes to mind is their campaign to stop the use of palm oil. The deforestation um, in uh, Borneo and other parts of Indonesia and uh, saving the orangutan. Now, the Melbourne Zoo said to me, so we ran a campaign uh, encouraging people not to buy Nestle and Cadbury's because they use palm oil. Big public campaign, they had uh, information that went out to all of the school kids that would come and visit the zoo and the various dis different visitors and they campaigned and campaigned on this. As a result, and they pulled all of the Cadbury and Nestle products from their shelves so you couldn't go to the cafe at the zoo and purchase any of their products and they told other people, their visitors, the people who paid to get into the zoo, don't spend your money on these companies. So much so that Cadbury's has had to now review and change uh, their ingredients. So they don't use palm oil anymore. Now, Cadbury's had to come to the table and I think it's a fantastic outcome, it absolutely is. Now, Cadbury's have come to the table and negotiated with the zoo and said, look, we are uh, putting in place better products because of your campaign, because of what you did, we've taken action. The directors of the zoo last week said to me, we would be very worried that if the government removed the exemptions in the law to stop boycotts and effectively that kind of advocacy, would we be liable? And I looked at them and I said, probably so. And that is the creeping element um, that this attitude and this culture from this government is going to reach. It's not just about the big headline issues of the, this Prime Minister doing the lobbying and the dirty work of the coal industry. Um, of course it is that, but it's not... The, if the impact is going to be much broader than that. And I'm very concerned in particular. So when I agreed to um, chair this um, session for Tim... Um, that hadn't happened, so I hadn't thought that that's something I really wanted to talk about, but I, I have this opportunity to say to you all as um, Greens that as we uh, um, think about the types of activism and campaigning that we do as a movement over the next 12 months, um, making sure we are not um, distracted and um, uh, um, too narrow that what the gov all the government is after is in relation to... Um, shutting down uh, coal mining or uh, doing the bidding of the coal industry, because that's what they're going to keep talking about when it comes to protest. I think we also need to understand the big chilling effect that their attitude is already having on broader environmental campaigns. Ones where everyday people, regardless of who they vote for actually, uh, do participate in, um, feel very proud about, uh, because they feel like at least it's something that they're doing. And I think when we look at the statistics around the destruction of the planet, all of the um, images that we're seeing of the bushfires at the moment and the fact that people undoubtedly know that this is linked to climate change, when they look at the extinction rates of animals and, um, and the destruction of habitat, not just here in Australia but around the world, people can so easily become... We all can. So easily become depressed about this, and this is all too big. This is, the, this is the politician's job and they're failing at it. How, what can I do? And I'm very worried that this campaign from the government is not just designed uh, to shut down um, 
big money having an impact on political campaigns, but it's to t send a message to each individual person, it's not worth it. Your commitment to saving this place isn't worth it. And that is a far more insidious, harder um, thing to campaign against unless we name it for what it is. So I'm a big believer that we need uh, political action when it comes to saving the planet, absolutely, and democracy is a big part of that. Uh, but we need um, individuals to have uh, the sense that they too are both responsible so that they uh, know that when they do things, um, they do it knowing that um, they're not helpless, they're not hopeless, and they expect better of their government. The last thing we want is for people to feel so disempowered that they vacate the field of activism. When you look at those, all of those amazing young people rallying out there on the streets in relation to um, the student strikers, all the people who are participating in the re Extinction Rebellion, um, they are arcing up against this idea that individual action doesn't make a difference. And they're saying, no, I'm taking a stand and I want, I'm going to make sure I'm going to put my energy and my commitment into, an, into this issue because I believe in it. That is what we have to help foster as a movement that individual action collectively can make a difference and use that to, to get those political outcomes that we need as well. So when we think about our ecology and, and what faces us as a nation, um, Australia is like nowhere else on earth. More than 80% of our plants and our mammals and almost half of our birds are only found here. We do live in a special place. Our environment is precious and unique. Um, but so many of our precious and iconic species are simply disappearing. We are in the middle of an extinction crisis. And of course, I'm not, I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You, all un, you are all here, you all understand this. But let's just be clear. We are in the midst of a climate emergency, but what is even making this even worse is that the extinction crisis is happening at the same time and they are feeding each other. It is the perfect storm for ecological collapse. Nearly 2,000 Australian species are threatened with extinction and more than half of these, there is no plan to save them. It's simply in the too hard basket. The government in the last week, as well as this launching this campaign against activism and Australians who care about their country and their environment and the future of their kids, whether it's to shut down protests or silence dissent, outlaw the opportunity to spend your money on the projects that you like and not spend your money on the projects you don't like. As well as that, the government's also announced a review of the environmental laws that are meant to look after our precious places, the EPBC Act. Um, those laws are well and truly out of date and they've been failing to do everything that we would expect environmental protection laws to do. But when announcing this review, the government said this was about getting rid of green tape, i.e., weakening the process, weakening those laws that are meant to protect our environment. And I just want to leave you with one um, statistic to think about, um, because the government's talking a lot about green tape, fast-tracking of processes, getting in the environmental scientists and the community out of the way. 
That's what they mean when they say green tape. And since the start of the EPBC Act uh, in two, the year 2000, up until this last uh, financial year, there's been 1,049 um, actions, so projects, that have been um, approved. 1,049. Can anybody guess how many in that period of time have been refused by an environment minister? Anyone have any idea? It's not quite zero. That would, that would be terrible. It's not quite zero. 21. 21 have been knocked back and there's been over almost uh, 1,050 approved. So that is 2%. 2% of what comes before the minister's desk is knocked back. And we've got a government who is out saying we have to rewrite the rules to make it easier for projects that damage the environment to get the tick and the sign-off from the minister. So we have a lot of work to do. And while I talk about individual action and doing everything we can as a movement to support activists, part of my job in the parliament is to ensure that things like this don't go unnoticed and that we use this process to actually fix our environment laws so we actually have um, a framework by which um, activists can um, use to ensure that we actually do save our precious places and our beautiful um, habitat and animals and species before things are too late. So that's why we've got all these wonderful speakers to come and speak to you today. And our first speaker um, on the panel is going to be Nikki Ison. Um, Nikki is one of Australia's most respected campaigners and experts on renewable energy a senior research consultant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures and founder of the Community Power Agency. She's also recently started a WW, at WWF, leading their new export renewable energy campaign. She, has an, she, is, an expert, she is an expert in the field of community energy, specialising in energy policy and governance, energy options assessment and community-owned renewable energy. She has extensively researched community energy projects, including undertaking two research projects examining both the technical and the governance aspects of community energy projects. I sense a theme here, Nikki. Yeah. Community, community, community. During 2010, Nikki undertook a self-studied tour of 30 community projects and organisations across Europe. Um, and she's got a presentation for us, and then we can go to some questions after we hear from the other panellists. Thank you. Welcome, Nikki. Hi everyone, I'm Nikki Eisen. Bio is a little out of date, I'm now a research associate at UTS, um, uh, amazing organisation. Uh, before I go any further, I would like to acknowledge that we're standing and sitting on traditional land, the land of the Ngunnawal people, uh, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that we would be living in a more ecologically just and democratic society if we learnt from their way of life. Uh, I've been asked to talk about energy democracy. It's interesting, I did uh, an honours thesis on energy democracy uh, in 2010 and I went back, I was on the bus from Sydney this morning and I went back and read some of it. So I'm, I'm well versed in my energy democracy um, uh, theory, but I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, maybe we'll have some questions around it at the end. But I wanted to 
pick up some themes that I see emerging in the discourse, particularly coming from the Greens, around energy democracy and what is energy democracy? And I kind of see, is it private ownership by everyone? where everyone in Australia and around the world has access to their own locally sourced renewable energy. Rooftop solar in Australia, as we know, is booming. I think we're at something like 2.2 million households that have solar on their roof, and we've just had the largest rooftop solar month in Australia's history in October. So, you know, it's only going up and up. Um, so that's one potential type of energy democracy. Is it public ownership? You know, Snowy Hydro is the original and most iconic version of you know, energy democracy. It is publicly owned. Um, we also now have Cleanco in Queensland, the first dedicated renewable energy publicly owned entity. Um, it's been a long time coming, but it's finally up and operating. So is it public ownership? Or is it collective or community ownership? And I'm going to talk a little bit about community energy later, as you heard from my bio. That's what I've been spent the last decade or 15 years of my life on. Well, my proposal to you is energy democracy is all three of those things. And that individually, each of those forms of energy democracies has their strengths and their weaknesses. You know, there are, um, who here is a big fan of public ownership of energy? Great. Excellent. Problem is, Snowy Hydro currently price gouging consumers across Australia. I would also posit that if we still had a publicly owned, entirely 100% publicly owned energy system in Australia, we would not be approaching 25% renewables next year. So there are some, some strengths, huge strengths, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have public ownership, but there are also some weaknesses of each of those models. And so I said, I think it is all of those things, and I want to go back to first principles. When I was, I don't know, 20-odd, I was in second year uni at University of New South Wales. I was a budding engineering student, and I listened to a speech by this guy. Um, this guy is a guy called Herman Shear. Anyone here heard of Herman Shear? One, two, ooh, a few. Um, he is credited as one of the fathers of the German renewable energy policy. He wasn't Joseph the Greens guy, the, he was a social democrat. But for me, this speech that I went to was instrumental. It um, helped shape the course of my life over the last 15 years um, because Ms. Scheer talked about renewable energy as being fundamentally different fundamentally different from the energy discourse and infrastructure um, that had powered the 20th century around the world. An energy system that was based on fossil fuels and also uranium. An energy system that was polluting, as we know, exploitative of those local resources, highly centralised, both physically but also operationally and ownership-wise, the number of uh, organisations owning and operating those power plants are few. And it's based on a market of fuel, where the fuel you extract from the earth, coal, oil, gas, uranium. Renewable energy is actually fundamentally different. It is clean. It is contextual. So if you have sunshine, 
harness the sun. If you have wind energy, harness the wind. If you have water power, harness water. It's multi-scale. Um, I think I've got a slide around that. Oh. Um, and it works with nat natural cycles. It's using the abundant sunshine and the abundant wind. Uh, and, you know, there are some forms of renewable energy, like, you know, badly done bioenergy or badly done geothermal that can be a bit extractive. But if it's done well, it works with natural cycles and it does not exhaust them. And finally, it's based on the ma a market of technology because the fuel is free. It is the sun, it is the wind. And so, you know, I think this cartoon is a great example of, you know, why we have had such resistance over the last 30 to 40 years against renewable energy because the fuel is free. And thus it's based on shorter supply chains, not really long supply chains. And that means that it can be more empowering. Um, in 2017, I helped organise the Community Energy Congress. We got uh, the second one, first one was here in Canberra, that one was in Melbourne, and we had uh, 25 Aboriginal leaders up on the stage, including Fred Hooper, who um, is from the Morrowa Nation. He's normally a water activist. Uh, there's a lot around the Murray-Darling Basin, amazing guy. And he said something that really resonated and sticks with me, that renewable energy can be a start on the pathway to self-determination for Aboriginal people and out of poverty. And it's not just Aboriginal people, it is people find, you know, coping with energy access all around the world. We are seeing the proliferation of microgrids and uh, solar-powered products that are really helping people you know, electrify and get access to energy and from that be able to do a whole range of things in a way that centralised fossil fuel-based power does not enable because it requires that centralized because it requires that centralization and for so many places it's uneconomic to do that so renewable energy is different and that was really exciting to me as someone who cared deeply about climate change but wanted to create a better world we were dealing with a set of technologies that could be really complex solar pv is a highly complex you know, set of engineering to create but it could be really simple, like solar passive design, or, you know, a well-designed house. And everyone can participate. I do not think there is a person on this planet who could not get access to solar in some way. They might not have it now, but we can enable it. So everyone can participate in this energy uh, transition, this uh, you know, energy future households, communities, Aboriginal communities, farmers, councils, fossil fuel workers, businesses, vulnerable and locked out workers. That is the potential that we're talking about for renewable energy to democratise our energy system. But some people will and currently are benefiting more than others. This energy democracy will not happen by itself and it is not happening by itself. Some people are currently locked out. I rent, anyone else rent? Anyone live in an apartment? Who has solar? Who would like solar but can't at the moment? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people are locked out of solar and I think that's not good enough. There are solutions to all of these problems. What they require is some political will and some funding. 
So that's why we've created the Solar for All campaign, and I really encourage you to get on there and uh, you know, follow the... There's a great video that explains how it all works. I want to talk a little bit about community energy because that's what I've spent the last 10 years of my life, 15 years of my life on. But what is community energy? We describe community energy as where people come together to develop, deliver and benefit from clean energy solutions. That could be a solar farm or a solar array on a building. It could be a wind farm. It could be an energy efficiency program. It could even be owning a community energy retailer like Enova in the Northern Rivers. Currently, there are 110 community energy groups around the country. Uh, when I first started and founded, co-founded Community Power Agency in 2010-11, there are five. We knew of five. Ten years later, or nine years later, we're at 110, 105. Um, I just got back from Yapoon in central Queensland a month ago where the newest community energy group just started. This map is out of date. There are now community energy groups in that part of the world. But these projects are small. Oh, no. Um, one of the first community energy groups that we were involved with is a group called Repower Shoalhaven, and this is slides from these. Because I think community energy is powerful not just from an energy democracy perspective, but also potentially from an economic democracy perspective, which I know was the last session. Because if you think about where do you, as people, put your money? You put it in a bank, you put it in a house. You buy and sell shares or you put it in your super. Pretty much none of that is in your local community. All of your money goes out of your community. Meanwhile, if you're a local business or a local household, you pay electricity bills that are going up and those bills go to pay an electricity retailer that is most likely not based in your community, a coal-fired power station that is probably not in your community, and the network company that is almost definitely not in your community. So your money is going out of your community in two ways. And it's getting worse, and it's creating climate change, as we all know. So what Repower Shoalhaven did is what now 109 other groups around the country are doing, come together to try and do something different. So they've now installed solar on the roof of about 15 different organisations in their community. This is the Shoalhaven Heads Bowling Club. Local community members own that um, solar and they get a return on their investment and the Shoalhaven Heads Bowling Club gets lower electricity bills and after 10 years they'll own it. Nice form of community enterprise. And that's the kind of thing we need. But the problem is it's hard. In other parts of the world, you have really vibrant community energy sectors, community-owned wind farms, community offshore wind farms in the case of Shetland Islands, but they have policies in place that have enabled community energy. We have had piecemeal occasional grant programs in Australia. We have got to 150 community energy projects through so much blood, sweat and tears on the smell of an oily rag, with a, working against an energy system that is not designed for local ownership. That has to change if we want to scale and democratise our energy system and ensure that everyone can participate and that local communities can be a key driver in its energy transition. 
So, final, I think final part of my talk is that I wanted to say a that we have a choice. We're standing at a crossroads here in Australia, particularly, but also around the world, because the transition to clean energy is now inevitable. What is not inevitable is that it will happen in a way that is fast enough to address climate change, or will happen fairly and democratically as the potential exists for it to do. Because we have the technology. Wind and solar work. They are the cheapest form of new energy generation. Storage is coming down right now. The technology exists, it's amazing. We also have the money. Like there is more money slushing around there in big superannuation funds and capital funds um, wanting to put um, money into renewables projects. There's not enough renewables projects for all the money around because they are economic. And we also have the people. We have the skilled people, particularly in Australia, who can make the most of it. But the fact that we actually have economics on our side presents a threat and an opportunity. I've been thinking about community energy and things like that for a long time, but it's not happening at the scale and at the pace that we need to address climate change. And climate change is fundamentally a justice issue. We have to stop climate change and the worst impacts of climate change from, from a justice perspective. So in that case, there's an urgency. What do we do with large corporate renewables projects? Where do they fit into this energy democracy ecosystem? Are we going to turn them down because they're not democratic enough? They're not fair enough? Or are we going to embrace them because they can speed things up? That's the tension and the thing that I, you know, I've been thinking about and living with and I think is worth discussing. Because the thing is, is that Australia has some of the best renewable resources in the world. We have abundant land, we have a low population base, uh, low energy demand, and we have relationships and proximity to some places like Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, that are going to find it a lot harder to decarbonise their entire energy system than we will. Are we going to help them? I think we should, but I think we're probably going to need the power of big capital to do it. Because, but I think the thing that I wanted to say most importantly is that you know, our mission, because this energy transition is now inevitable, is to make it faster and to make it fairer. And what I would argue is that fairer equals faster. Because if you can unlock every single person in the world to participate in the energy transition, not just as an individual, but as a worker, and someone who uh, has their child in a childcare centre, who uh, has money in a superannuation fund, there are so many opportunities to scale this. And so for me, the way I'm starting to think about energy democracy is as an ecosystem of a range of different models and ways of doing clean energy with all hands on deck. So I thought, given that thinking, what must we then do? Policy wonks in the room. We need to urgently resource the just and democratic clean energy solutions that are just not happening at scale. I haven't talked about Aboriginal renewable energy. There were some great programs like Bushlight that could have been better. 
that are being scrapped. And most of the programs that are going on, most of the large renewables companies are steering clear of Aboriginal um, land where they have land rights, um, or at least some kind of degree of land rights. So there are some big issues around that and big opportunities. There's public ownership, there's solar for all, there's community energy. These solutions need resourcing because they're not going to happen without it. And then the second thing is, I think we need to make private enterprise solutions better. I think we can't reject them. That's what's happening in Queensland at the moment. Um, there's some unions up there who are seeing bad labour practices and some renewables projects not benefiting their community. And so they're calling for an end of any large-scale renewables project. So what instead, if we try to build much more publicly owned renewables up there and increase the labour practices of the renewable energy industry and also demonstrated the economic benefit. Yesterday, there was an Auditor General's report out of Victoria that said uh, that the reverse auction rounds that they've run have delivered $280 million in economic benefit. And their policy programs have incentivized the supply chain benefits, not just the installation of a wind, wind turbine or a solar farm, but the incentivization of training, TAFE jobs, const, uh, supply chain jobs like manufacturing. There are now not just being wind towers being manufactured, there's turbo, uh, blades being manufactured and there's electric buses starting to be manufactured and all of these kinds of things. So how do we use these policy levers that we have at our disposal to make private enterprise better to deliver economic benefits, social benefits to the local community and the broader state? I think that's our challenge and I think that's how we get to the faster and fairer energy transition that we so urgently need. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki, um, and thanks for the uh, the presentation. I think it was it was good to have that alongside. Um, our next speaker is uh, Natalie Osborne. Natalie is a lecturer in the School of Environment and Science at Griffith University. Her research interests include social, spatial, and environmental justice in cities, just transitions, radical spatial policies, more than humans, publics, more than human publics. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Emotional uh, geographies, public spaces, and public feelings. Her current research program explores political depression, ecological anxiety, and, st and storing futures um, as well. So she's, she's also a co-producer of Radio Reversal, a critical theory and politics program on 102.1 FM. Where is that? That's... Brisbane for Triple Z. Okay. Um, Natalie, thanks for coming and having a chat to us. Good afternoon, folks. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people on whose land we meet today, pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Uh, sovereignty over this land was never ceded. I'd also like to acknowledge the Jagara and Turrbal peoples on whose lands I am an uninvited guest in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'd also like to particularly acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here in this room, as well as those not present involved in the Black Greens, uh, for the excellent and transformative work they're doing, uh, movement building work, um, 
as well as for the work of holding non-Indigenous Greens to account when we need it. I know that work sucks, um, but I do appreciate um, all that you do. Concepts of commoning, commons, and the more than human perspectives draw heavily, um, although this is not always acknowledged, um, on the philosophies, knowledges, and practices of First Peoples, both here in so-called Australia, as well as from Aotearoa and Turtle Island and elsewhere. Um, so I'd like to particularly acknowledge a few First Nations thinkers um, who've really influenced my, my work, some of the stuff I'll be drawing from today, um, including, but not limited to, Arnie Mary Graham, Irene Watson, Melissa Lukashenko, Jay Johnson, Erica Violet Lee and Zoe Todd. I also want to express my condolences and my rage and my shame um, that this week yet another Aboriginal person was killed by police. Uh, and my heart goes out to the community at Ewan Damu. A pointless gesture, but it's there all the same. This is not an isolated incident. Um, sorry, settler colonial violence is real and it is ongoing. I was invited to speak about ecological democracy and in particular urban commons and commoning. Um, I'm deeply interested in how practices of urban commons might help us build more ecologically and socially just futures, help us create livelihoods and indeed futures that are worth having, um, and futures beyond violent and extractive capitalism. Um, but there is no social justice and there's no ecological democracy without justice for First Nations people. There's a huge task of learning and unlearning that white folk need to do. Speaking of my own sphere in particular, non-Indigenous town planners and urban geographers are generally not trained to see cities as country or to grapple with what that means or how that truth should change practices of urban governance. We still see cities through imperial eyes, to borrow a phrase from Libby Porter, and through capitalist eyes. We need to unlearn this. This unlearning is particularly important in the re-emerging context of eco-fascism, which unfortunately we can never let stray too far from our thoughts. A commitment to ecological democracy must be actively anti-fascist. Otherwise, we will find our arguments and strategies for the environment weaponized in dangerous ways. In fighting for citizens' assemblies and cooperatives and commons, we must also recognise and undo the existing violences and infrastructures that would bolster eco-fascist regimes, like colonial policing, like island prison camps, like a militarised border, like nationalism, like white supremacy, like sexism and ableism, like environmental movements that centre white voices. Um, otherwise, we'll have, as Francis Markham warned, some very nice guaranteed green jobs policing a highly militarised border, um, from climate refugees in order to secure the environment of this place for the people who stole it. But I wasn't asked to ring the alarm about eco-fascism, and Amanda and Nicola and others have already raised this issue today. I was asked to offer something a little bit more hopeful, even though that's not necessarily totally on brand for me. Um, <laughs> reducing the spread and scale of climate catastrophe. How can we do this, and how can we do this thinking about urban planning in cities? Um, so I'd like to turn our attention to the idea of commons and I'd also like to, at this moment, apologise. I am um, quite unwell and had to take the really good painkillers today, um, which just means I'm going to rely a bit heavily on my notes, and I'm, I'm a little fuzzy. I, I do apologise for that. So, um, any urban planners in the room, just so I know how freely I can talk? <laughs> One, cool, I'm there with you, mate. Um, Look, as a, as a profession, as a practice, as a field of research, um, urban planning has been almost entirely captured by capitalist systems of urban production. And by, when I say urban production, I'm talking about the processes that produce urban space and then commodify it. Um, urban planning, speaking systemically here, rarely reflects what we know about ecological systems. Um, and its relationship with democracy is frankly limited, um, tokenistic, and um, cynical. 
the political and economic reality of Australian cities is that they're not built for people, nor are they built for the earth. Uh, cities are habitat, but we don't govern them as though they are. They're not built to be good, healthy, equitable places to live. They are literally built for capital. They're built to sustain settler colonialism. That's what they're for here. They're here to produce real estate and to act as sites of consumption. Such cities won't ever produce housing for all or democratic control over urban space. They won't create possibilities for multi-species thriving, nor will they achieve ecological justice. So one strategy for subverting and transforming urban systems, um, already enacted in diverse ways, as I'm sure some of you here are already involved in projects like this, is to create or recreate commons, particularly urban commons, and for us to practice and relearn the strategies for governing commons. Some of this means attuning to the already existing commons or proto-commons that we participate in, and people like J.K. Gibson-Graham and Jenny Cameron and others who study diverse community and feminist economies remind us that although capitalism feels and is in many ways pretty totalizing, there are in fact myriad alternative economic practices that, elicit, that exist alongside capitalism, sometimes because of it, sometimes despite of it, sometimes antagonistically, and sometimes as part of the reproductive labor essential to capitalism's functioning. Um, but we need to nourish and grow and look for opportunities to extend and practice our commoning um, so that we can crowd out the dominant, exploitative, extractivist ways of producing and governing urban space. So commons really used to be think, thought about quite, I guess, quite simplistically as a kind of resource, right? Like as a common pool resource or a piece of land that is held and is governed in common. Um, it's now a little bit more trendy to think about commoning as um, a process as well as the participants involved in that process. So commoning, when we, you know, make a verb, um, is the fluid, dynamic, relational practices of creating those commons and the ways of governing commons. Um, so these are possibilities for collective and political experiences that are not reducible to either the market or the state, although they're often entangled with both of those. Um, Benjamin Cook and Ruth Lane, who look particularly at more than human practices of commoning, um, argue that the practices of commoning can persist within and among capital relations, less as an object associated with common property, and more as a process that can exist across multiple forms it's not just about taking out a piece of land and saying, all right, we're going to collectively own this, although that can be really important. It's also about thinking about how we can maybe start to break down or work across existing forms of property um, to, to try and build those practices of commoning and, and develop our, our muscles around collective governance again. Um, which does mean that it starts to become more possible to think about commons in cities, which as we know, tend to be like highly broken up into individual parcels of land. Um, and I think perhaps like the most exciting, particularly from what we've been talking about today, the most exciting thing about commoning is the kind of relations and politics they necessitate. Um, representative government at a distance is not a system for effectively governing or creating commons. Can't, doesn't work, right? Um, it's got to be about the people there, the people in it, and also the non-people, the more than people in it. To think, of the cities as, to think of a city as a common, it helps to consider that cities are actually already a collective project. Um, those of us who live in cities, we're always producing and reproducing urban space. By the ways we inhabit it, we're actually producing the value that then gets captured and commodified and parceled off and sold off. Um, but we can start to see then um, that traditional capitalist modes of spatial governance are kind of designed to constantly re-enclose an already existing commons. So that's like a fun trick of thought once we realize we don't actually have to create something totally from scratch, we just have to intervene in the processes that are taking them away from us, maybe start, things start to feel a little bit more possible. 
But these, these new or reformed or reimagined modes of governing urban commons, I will actually say, like the other reason why I'm talking about urban commons in particular, other than the fact that I'm an urban geographer and that's what I do, um, is that this, this simply is where most of us live. And sometimes when we look at kind of utopian schemes around commoning, we imagine like eco-villages, um, you know, on the outskirts of town, and that's really great and really beautiful and really lovely. But most of us live in cities. We have to work with what we have. We have to address the alienation and separation and um, disconnection that most of us living in cities feel about living in cities. So we've got to work with where we are. And these reimagined modes of governing these commons, these already existing commons, these proto-commons, these, these commons that are you know, right there ready for us, um, need to grapple much better with how we are entangled with the more than human world. Especially in cities, right? Like often we assume, and, and environmentalists have been um, pretty bad at this, um, of, of imagining the environment as something that's like outside, that's outside of people, that's some away elsewhere that we can put a fence around and protect. When actually, you know, and then the city kind of becomes the inside and then nature is outside and that's, that's actually just not what's going on at all. Your whole body is an ecosystem, right? Like we are already more than human and our cities are more than human as well. Urban planning, even at its most participatory, has largely ignored more than human inhabitants um, as co-producers of cities, our more than human flatmates in the complex, nested and very messy assemblage that a city is. And this reflects a really long-standing bifurcation in Western thought that also enables the exploitation of nature, right? That cities have generally been constructed as the opposite of nature, there's a lot of gender and race stuff there as well. Um, and at best, the environment is construed as something that can exist in defined pockets in cities, like a, like a park, um, but that remains distinct from the city itself. But people working in struggles for environmental justice, as well as urban ecologists, have been arguing that actually we need to think about the city as an ecosystem. Um, we've got to recognise that our existence in cities is both, both depends on and is troubled by our cohabitation with a raft of other organisms who make their homes in cities. And to create commons, to live in commons with each other, we need to pay close, close attention to who we're entangled with. Not just the really charismatic, good-looking ones that get protected by legislation. Um, sometimes there's non-charismatic, annoying species that maybe we don't want living so close to us. We have to find way, better ways to live with too. Yeah. We've got to make space for the bats and the fig trees and the bees and the snakes and the ibises and that magpie that is actually literally trying to kill me in Tarragindi at the moment. But anyway, moving on. Um, so there's lots of ways that we can think about commenting. There's heaps of projects. I'm sure some of you are thinking about them already and, and maybe we can talk about them in question time. Um, I just want to um, move on to a couple of like, uh, just real quick talk about some of the limitations maybe we have or, or some of the troubles that we need to work through or, or hang on to as we're thinking about making urban commons or expanding urban commons and, and thinking about how we can build more than human urban commons. Um, is that for many of us, um, we have really limited atrophied skills in managing shared resources collaboratively, collectively, democratically, and oriented by social and ecological justice. It's not to say we can't do them, and, and this is one of the sad things is I think sometimes, um, sometimes people are have, have had so little experience of other ways of doing things that it becomes an impossibility. It's not, right? Like, we used to do this, um, and plenty of people still do. We just need to build these muscles up again. But there are a whole set of practical, interpersonal skills that are kind of undeveloped in a lot of us. I'm really talking about myself here. Please don't feel offended if you think I'm talking about you. The other thing is, when we do these things, and certainly some of the, some of the kind of projects of commenting that I've been involved in, sometimes they fail, right? Or they don't last forever. That's, that's got to be okay. You know, it, it's got to be okay that things exist while they do and then, you know, maybe they fall apart and we learn what we do and that's got to be okay because there's going to be a lot of that. 
um, people fall out, things fall over, legislation changes, things become foreclosed. Um, and even when they're working, they're real messy and they're really hard, right? Um, beautiful too, that, but they're constantly being contested, they're constantly in flux, it's that constant state of things needing to be talked about and renegotiated. It does take a lot of evenings, Oscar Wilde was right. Um, and they always need a lot of care. Um, that the care work is really intrinsic, it's everything in the commons, it's the people involved, the more than people involved, everything in that requires care, um, and care work is, is work. Um, a study of commons in Dublin found that organisers referred to their commons as a place of exercise for the social body, which is then always in relation, often with people you may not agree with, so it's like going to the gym. And another challenge or risk we face in commons is enclosure, like enclosure is sometimes described as an event, like something historically happened, but it is it's probably more useful to understand it as an ongoing practice and a dynamic. Capitalism and the state are both very good at enclosing or co-opting commoning experiments, especially when they seem to either be working or possibly threatening. Um, and we see this in the utter corruption of the term sharing economy, um, which has generally come to mean a combination of platform capitalism and renting services or products from precarious non-employees. Right, like what is sharing about that? It's not sharing responsibility, it's not sharing decision-making power, it's not sharing access, it's not sharing benefits, like there's no sharing there. Um, and finally, we've always got to ask who the commons we participate in are for, and who may be excluded, both in terms of the human and non-inhuman. At whose expense do they thrive? Because it's probably going to be at someone's, right? And, and maybe that's okay, right? If the people whose expense it are is from these like really rich capitalists, like that's fine, right? Should be at their expense, that's great. Um, but we need to be really honest with ourselves about at whose expense it is. Um, practices of commoning are still, yeah, really understood in these anthropocentric ways. Um, but in order to respond at all effectively to climate change in cities, we need to think better about cities as habitats and as ecosystems, to think about who we're entangled with in cities, who is close to us, carpet python that lives in my ceiling, um, and think about how we can support mutual surviving and thriving. Commons and commoning are not inherently good or just or ecologically sound. They're not a panacea. In diverse cities sited on stolen land, we've got to be on guard to prevent commoning from reproducing existing power dynamics, which they totally could, being assumed by capitalism, gentrification, which they totally could, or into discourses and politics of eco-fascism, I'm sorry, I brought it back, um, which they totally could. But in terms of getting started or maybe continuing the wonderful work you're already doing, have a think about existing practices of commoning you're already involved in or aware of. Can these be made more just, more democratic, more ecologically sound? Um, is there a way to bring more than human values and interests into that space more effectively? And what would that look like? And think about the urban spaces and infrastructures in your area that might be able to serve additional purposes. So um, alongside or with existing uses. Huge swaths of urban and suburban areas are single purpose. It's just how planning tends to work. Um, and they often only serve that purpose at particular times. So what we actually have around us are a whole host of opportunities for looking at things like um, the manifold commons, that's a term I'm borrowing from Bresnahan and Byrne. Things like disused office fronts, um, offices and shop fronts, yards, warehouses, streets and parks as well as how the commons we already might be um, part of, we could open them up more. So, a couple of thoughts there. Thanks. Thanks, Natalie. I'm going to get um, Marg up here, Margaret Blakers, who's um, filling in kindly because Virginia Marshall was not able to um, make it today. Um, Marg, we'll hear from you and then...
fingers crossed, we've got a bit of time to do some Q&A. So, welcome up, Mark. So, I'll start also by acknowledging that we're meeting on the land of the Ngunnawal people and uh, respect their elders past, present and emerging. And also to note that we have many, many, many Indigenous nations across this country. And what I want to do is bring us back literally down to earth, to the earth that we all depend upon. And a few people have um, mentioned that not only do we have a climate crisis, but we also have an ecological crisis, an extinction crisis, whatever way you want to look at it, which are intertwined, but actually also in many ways separate. And the question that I have is how we're going to tackle the ecological crisis. And in a way, I mean, these thoughts are somewhat unformed because I only was thinking them uh, as the day went along. But how do we bring democracy into the, uh, that arena? How, do we, how are we going to look after nature in this place where we live, in this country that we are all have some level of responsibility for, and on this entire planet? and we can't dis disentangle all of those different levels of, uh, of activity. And actually, I'm just going to talk very quickly to start with about the swift parrot, which is a gorgeous... Who knows about the swift parrot? Oh, look, everybody... Oh, really? That's fantastic. Um, well, it's actually not real good, because if so many people know about the swift parrot, the fact that it's in the dire predicament that it currently is is an indictment on all of us, I'm afraid. So I've just started, oh, swift parrot's been a bit of a motif for, for me over the last decade or two or three, but uh, just in the last two or three months I've started looking into it more uh, intently. And it's a little parrot, it, might, it breeds in southeastern Tasmania, migrates to the mainland in winter, flies all through south, uh, southeastern mainland, Victoria, New South Wales, right up to Queensland, in order to find winter flowering eucalypts to feed on. Now, how on earth does it do it? Does it do it? You know, you're a little parrot in Tassie. How do you fly across Bass Strait? You don't go to the same place every winter. You go to different places. How, do, how on earth does this happen? And part of the, that story, at least, is that they gather on and increasingly on the south coast here, down uh, between Ulladulla and the border, more or less, Victorian border, uh, and they gather in flocks sometimes really huge flocks, and there's one record of 1,200 birds roosting in one place, about uh, in 2012 it was, out of a total population of less than 2,000. So, astonishing, and this seems to be some sort of communication behaviour where they can tell each other, here's where to go to get a feed. So you have these parrots, they start, they, as I said, they breed in Tasmania, Again, not every year in the same place, but they do go back to the same sites every few years when conditions are right. And they're being logged. And because they're being logged, uh, there's what's recently been, the last, about three or four years ago, was worked out that um, sugar gliders are following the logging in. Sugar gliders were introduced to Tasmania. They don't belong there. They follow the swift parrots in. They eat all the babies and the female adults that are brooding the eggs total catastrophe. And then the ones that survive come across to the mainland here um, and on the south coast of New South Wales, 
they come to forests which also are being logged. So at the moment, this parrot is on a trajectory to extinction by about 2030, if nothing changes. So what do we do? How we, this is just one species and it's obviously quite a charismatic one because everybody knows about it. What do we do? And how are we going to uh, change the way in which we make our decisions to accommodate this species, for example, which requires both public and private land for its, uh, its life, its life history, its, its ecosystem. Um, which requires a particular sort of set of, of, uh, of um, food and other needs at all stages of its life. In a landscape which is divided quite um, neatly into, not neatly, but precisely into public and private land, public and private responsibilities, and with a federal government which has completely abandoned any responsibility for the environment and very difficult for people who care to work out how they can express that care and make it work, whether it's for the swift parrot, for you know, any one of any number of species, plants, animals, fungi, insects, the whole works. And as I said, not just on a local or national scale, but on a global scale. Um, for me, it's a moral question. It's not that uh, I don't see uh, other forms of life purely as being here to serve human needs, even though they, they do play a critical and essential role in keeping the planet habitable. Uh, it's a moral issue that we should not knowingly allow other species, other forms of life to go extinct because of our greed, our um, domination of the way the planet functions. Um, somebody mentioned that the Australia's environment legislation is about to be, or is, yeah, is about to be reviewed, and I think that we need, it's not just going to be through this process, but as a part of a larger process, we need to turn on its head our current assumptions, and for the the last 20 or 30 years, the assumption has been, uh, no, I'll actually go back a step, stage further, which is that up until uh, from the time, from 1901, the Constitution, which didn't mention obviously the environment and therefore left it in the hands of the states, post-war, the Whitlam government, the Labor government coming in, environment coming onto the agenda and becoming a, uh, a, a becoming an um, responsibility being taken for it at the national level with a series of pieces of legislation from the mid-70s to the mid-90s, where the Commonwealth took more and more responsibility for looking after the environment, um, to literally the mid-1995 when regional forest agreements were uh, invented as a way of handing that responsibility back to the states. Howard then coming in and that whole impetus in the last 20 years reversing what had happened in the previous 20. So instead of coming from the states to the Commonwealth government and the Commonwealth being responsible, it has gone backwards uh, to the states and even beyond. And we need to turn that on its head again, turn it back to the national level in the Australian context with the whole continent to manage 
the national level is the only level that can sensibly be responsible. It doesn't mean doing everything, but it has to ultimately, the buck has to stop on the desk of the Prime Minister if the swift parrot goes to oblivion. For that, we need not just the laws and institutions that um, the environment movement's been campaigning for, but we need resources, money, mega, mega dollars of money every year on forever, because it's just as important to de defend nature, to defend our land, our landscape, as it is to defend our borders. And obviously, I would say <laughs> a lot more important. Um, we need to stop saying we only need a little bit of money to do X, Y, or Z. We don't. We need a lot. And that, to me, is the number one uh, priority. And then the question comes as to how you would actually allocate, distribute, spend that money. How does it link in with Aboriginal aspirations, with Torres Strait Islander aspirations? How does it link in with the fact that we've got quite, um, you know, the, the, the uh, property uh, relations that we have are so uh, anchored in human uh, society and European human at that. Uh, at that. How, do we, how do we manage those kinds of, of complexities? We've seen what happens when you give a very large amount of money to do supposedly something about the environment in the Murray-Darling Basin, completely corrupted. So there's, to me, there's a huge question there of how do you, well, first of all, how do we get the resources? If we get them, how do we actually allocate them? How can we mesh that, those sorts of questions with the indigenous uh, rights questions, the treaties that are under discussion or negotiation at the moment? Uh, who has the right, who has the responsibility, and then picking up on some of the other themes earlier in the day, how do we exercise those responsibilities? Um, what are the ways in which we can come together and make the decisions that need to be made? And I'm going to stop right there. Thank you. Thanks, um, thanks Margaret. I think we've got about 10 minutes of questions and then um, let you go. Uh, Josh, recently of Darwin. Um, my question, and it's kind of my question that I've had for the whole day, is it's so refreshing to be in a place where the ideas that are going to basically save us uh, are being discussed so openly, and then you look at the remainder of federal politics and the other parties and just how dire it is, and I want to thank all of our federal MPs for spending time in that building with those dreadful people. Um, so I guess my question to everyone on stage is what's, what's the electoral role in this? What's the Greens' role in this? you know, where a political party that is the wing of a movement in a local, state and federal government, what do we do to take not only these ideas but all the ideas from today, what do we do to, 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 to take them forward? Where do you see the Greens playing the most powerful role? Who, who would like to take that question first? Um, I, so, thank you. I think that's a really important question. Um, but a really dangerous one because this is the question that, like, divides <laughs> um, movements and friendships in some ways. I mean, I think... Um, I think we have some really fantastic MPs that are making conversations possible. And um, I'm really lucky where I live um, in Meange in Brisbane. I, you know, I look at the work being done by our sole Greens councillor in, in Meange in Brisbane, uh, Councillor Jonathan Sri, who has been able to be really transformative in terms of opening up spaces for things like practising some of these things around commenting and around participatory budgeting and around um, alternative ways of practising democracy in cities. Um, as well as, yeah, Michael Berkman, the, yes, only member of the Queensland opposition is a really fair way to put that. Um, but I, I, 
I, I guess the, the, I think there is the tension there though, right? Because it's um, election campaigns and electoral politics can be really all-consuming um, when they get going. And sometimes what that does is takes, takes energy or resources away. It can also be a really fantastic strategy for building the energy of our social movements if we're good about recruiting people and bringing them in and making them part of what's going on. Um, and if they feel like they've got a stake in what happens next outside of election times. Um, but I feel like I see that done fairly inconsistently and I, I get a little bit worried about that because I think that sometimes is a bit of a missed opportunity maybe. Um, and, and then I, I guess I'm also really worried about the burnout that can result from that. So I think um, electoral politics is such a hungry beast that, that sometimes we need to feed other things um, and it's a little hard to sometimes. Marg, you used to work for Bob Brown, of course, and been, you've watched the Greens Party um, uh, and you've watched us uh, grow as, in numbers, um, but also at the same time, uh, the history that you just outlined of environmental protections actually getting worse in some respects as the planet is collapsing uh, ecologically. What's your reflection on that? On, the, on Josh's yes. question, but I'm yes. saying with, yeah, with yeah. all of that experience. Look, I think it's about being courageous. I think it's about saying what needs to be said without, you know, going beating around the bush. Um, so... I think, did I just say that, uh, you know, I heard it just the other day when, when um, the fires are going everywhere and um, people were talking about threatened species and saying, um, it, it won't cost very much. Well, I'm sorry, it will. It will cost a huge amount and we have to say so. And uh, likewise, what's been happening this week with the, with the fires bringing home the reality of climate change, or a couple of years in Tasmania, the same thing was happening. The reality of what climate change means for ecosystems, for people, for life on this planet is now, you know, made manifest. We have to have the courage to say it. And we have to have the, the sort of will behind it to work up uh, real answer, you know, this is what we need to do. It's not just a matter of saying it's bad. It also has to be said, this is, these are, at least, we can't necessarily see a long way in the future, but at least these are the first two or three steps that'll take us in the right direction, and we're not going to compromise. And then we have to get out and talk to people, and we have to talk to people that we're not comfortable talking with. We have to, you know, one of the things I think we should do is start a series of pub tours through regional and rural Australia and just start talking to the people who are in the pubs or in the playgroups or whatever. I don't think I have a coherent answer. I have starts of answers to that question. Um, so forgive the half-formed thoughts. I've worked my entire career feeling like I'm ahead of the wave, the head of the curve, um, and that's a lonely place to be because most people don't understand what the hell you're talking about. And that really is the role that I see that the Greens has played most successfully, is being ahead of the curve and being out there on the lonely margin and trying to forge a pathway forward so other people can follow. But I think, so I think taking on new areas where something might be already mainstream, maybe there's now less of a role for the Greens. Maybe it's the new thing. I, you know, I think pill testing is a great example of something that the Greens is helping to bring into the mainstream. Um, maybe, yeah, so 
that's an idea. And then, you know, the, the non-traditional fights and getting them through and getting them legislated and using the power. And I think about the assisted dying stuff uh, legislation in Victoria as a great long-term, quietly done Greens campaign that um, you know, has made a huge impact on people's lives, people who are close to me. Um, so I think that there's some really things, some things that are outside the usual zeitgeist of what the Greens are known for that the Greens can really prosecute very successfully through parliamentary politics. The third, I think, picking off from what you were saying, is we need to demonstrate what the future looks like. We need to demonstrate what participatory budgeting looks like. We need to demonstrate what the clean energy future looks like. We need to demonstrate... Because people don't believe it until they can see it and touch it and experience it. Um, and so I think the Greens can play a whole bunch of roles in demonstrating a whole bunch of the solutions by practising them and by getting the funding, you know, using, you know, whatever parliamentary tactics you need to get some of the things funded. Um, so that's that's the thing, and then I think the fourth thing is holding the bastards to account. You know, like the oversight role in Senate esp estimates. You know that you do, Sarah, and so many of our colleagues, uh, your colleagues do. It's fundamentally important, um, and it really does help social movements. You know, you have a platform that many people don't have to be able to call out. You know, a whole bunch of the worst practices. So. Those are some of the ideas. I think there are more. Um, I want to finish by one final thing. So um, the bushfires this week, the way it's been done as a social movement, as a climate movement, has been different to bushfires in the past. And I really want to pay testament to the Climate Council. The Climate Council has worked for the last three to five years to find the messengers. They have developed the City's Power Partnership and worked with City Councils. And I poo-pooed it because I don't think City Councils uh, and Regional Councils have a huge role to play in decarbonising our energy system. But what they have done is found those regional mayors, those climate champions that are calling out from the front lines and being those things. I was wrong. They were right. They've also worked with emergency service leaders. And I think increasingly in the climate debate, it's really important to remember that the messenger is the message. And so I think there's a reflection that the Greens need to make, which is when are we the right messenger and when do we need to elevate the voice of other messengers and when do we need to work with other people and organisations who can defend us? Maybe we're not best to defend ourselves, but maybe there are other people out there who are great messengers who will cut through, who will defend the great work and champion the great work of the Greens. Thank you, Nikki. I, I would just say in um, summary of that, I think uh, this week has been a, a very good demonstration of um, the role that the Greens in the Parliament play. I mean, if we, if we weren't there this week, um, uh, speaking truth to power, um, keeping the bastards accountable, um, putting, um, saying the things that perhaps other people, um, uh, well, we know, lots of people in that building don't want to say. There wouldn't have been any opposition uh, to uh, Malcolm, uh, to uh, yeah. Scott Morrison's... <laughs> Sometimes they just all blend in together. Um, into Morrison's... 
of hero moment that he wanted this week. Um, the fact that we were there, every single one of us, standing up and saying, you know what, um, this is about uh, the real impact that climate change is having, and it's having uh, it on our communities, uh, on our uh, environments, on our towns, um, and, on, and on people. And I think um, it was quite stark, uh, the deafening silence that was coming from um, all the other parties in the parliament. No one else wanted to talk about it. Uh, the community wanted to talk about it, uh, overwhelmingly, um, and we were the ones there um, giving that voice uh, in, in the political realm. So um, I think this week's been a really good example, actually, of how you work with the community, uh, with the activists, um, and then in the parliament you can deliver that message too. Uh, one final question, and then we'll wrap up. Yes, down the front. Thank you, and I have to say it's not quite a question, but I wouldn't mind some uh, response anyway. Uh, Diane Evers, MP in the West Australian Parliament, and three weeks ago I introduced a bill to protect the rights of nature and all future generations. It's out there, it's speculative, it's got to be said now, because we will one day get to the point where we do that. And uh, I just like, and I want to just offer that if anybody else is interested in having a look at it, really happy to share it. Um, and if you have any advice for me as to where to go from now, that would be excellent. Um, thank you. I, was actually, I actually scribbled down on the top of my um, uh, notes here, rights of nature, because I actually think that cuts across um, all three of these presentations we've had today, actually. So um, I'm not sure whether Nikki or uh, Marg, you'd like to respond. Look, I have to say I'm slightly ambivalent about rights uh, for nature as a, as a concept. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, I'd be very interested to look at what you're proposing, but how you operationalise that and how that then stacks up against the rights of every other group that you want to assign rights to um, becomes obviously problematical. Yeah, I don't... I have questions rather than... Uh, than full-throated support, I'm afraid. I don't know enough about it. Like, I think the stuff we've seen in the headlines around rivers having rights and things like that, and, you know, it has been very powerful and very compelling. Um, I think uh, rights, like, like Mark was saying, that there's some issues around rights frameworks and there's some strengths to them. Um, I'm the lucky daughter of two professors, and one of them is a professor of systems, system thinking, and he... Um, is releasing a book in March. Uh, his name is Professor Ray Eisen, and he, um, it's called The Hidden, uh, Hidden Potential of Systems Thinking, um, you know, uh, how, do I, how to govern in a climate emergency. And I think that there's, you know, m for me more so than a rights-based approach, a systemic approach, and how we um, better create governance systems and comedy-type systems um, you know, is the type of skills and frameworks we start need to start to embed. And that doesn't mean there isn't a role for that right, uh, rights, but I think it needs to sit in that sort of broader systems discourse, personally. That's really cool. I think one of the... Um, I mean, I, like, share concerns, but I, I think there's also some potential for how um, taking a, a rights, um, rights of nature, kind of rights for the more than human approach could be really interesting in how that feeds back into our understanding of like a very in highly individualised liberal Western model of, of what human rights are, um, a discourse of rights that tends to strip out ideas about responsibility and obligation and just tend to be about, you know, some, some kind of notion of, a, of an individual person that I don't think is quite necessarily true or, or where we are. Like, do, do rights 
actually live in the individual or do they live somewhere else and, and do they live in relation? And I think that's some of the really interesting tensions that, that those struggles are, are bringing to light that we need to think more, um, maybe more creatively and, and um, more diversely about what it means to have rights and what it means to have responsibilities and how we hold them and what are the institutions that uphold or, or protect them. And I'll say, great, excellent, good on you. We need things that are moving things forward and sorry if we're sounding like a downer. It's, you know, we need more leadership like this. We just need lots of other things as well. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you all three of you for uh, speaking to us today and I know it's for those of you who've been here all day, it's, um, it's been long but um, uh, interesting. Um, I just want to pick up on one point. You all talked about... Um, being able to see um, what it is that we're actually trying to articulate. Uh, these solutions or how it is that communities are working together to save the planet, to look after each other, to have a different sense of care. And um, I, I held a um, film night for the film uh, 2040 back home in Adelaide a few weeks ago. And I must say, I've never had so many people come up to me afterwards and go, I get it now. I can actually see um, how all of this... Uh, interlink. So if you haven't seen that film, please go and see it um, or find it. I think it's a really, it's simple, it's, you know, it's, it was created in a way that uh, should be able to be used in classrooms. So it's very simple, but it really does help to show that there is hope. Uh, their solutions are already here. Nick, you've identified a bunch of ones that you're working on. Um, but it also shows that um, it can be done if we get out of this frame of it's just me, 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 and it's far more community um, working and living within nature. So thank you very much.